now. <laughs> well, hello. Hey, Jeff. <laughs> hello, Matt. How are you today? Oh, man, loaded question, but uh, cream rises to the top, and I got to say, I'm well fed. You could be worse, that's for sure. Yeah. I could be up a creek, you never know, but I'm doing well, man. I'm doing well. How about, you know, I didn't wake up. Today happens to be, I'm trying to think of it this way, but I would get too far afield if I tried to explain. I'm trying to think of today as my Sabbath. It's a Monday, it's most people's beginning, but I work in the restaurant industry, so we lock our doors twice from two different angles to keep people out on Mondays because this is a set apart day where we don't have to serve, cook, be next to the fire and talk about wine. So this is kind of a glorious day that I'm glad I get to share with you, Jeff. Well, I appreciate it. Of all the things that you could be doing today, you choose to spend your time or at least a little sliver of it uh, connecting with uh, somebody that you've only seen on the internet. That's true. Well, <laughs> the Discord, I found your vehicle. Say that again? Through the Discord, I found your vehicle. Oh, yeah, that's right. That's right. I'm having to do the, the car cast again today. Any Anytime that um, I ha I schedule a, a conversation that happens um, during the day, this is, this is the only um, viable place that I have to do it from, at least not, a, not on a, a weekend date. The, so I don't know in what direction you want to take this or what was on your heart to discuss, but I reached out to you and asked for this conversation because of two things, two main things. One's the umbrella and the other one's the hand holding the umbrella. The umbrella, the broad concept is you take time out of not only your day, but your weeks and your months. And it, we may be approaching a year now. I don't know how often you write these things down of you reaching out your hand to people and engaging them in conversation across the internet. And that's a very, that's a very curious task you've set for yourself. And I find it fascinating as a third person watching because one could not have done this 200 years ago. <laughs> right. And, and in the eighties, nobody did it, even though they had pagers and phones and stuff like this. So I just wonder what this all portends and you're right in it. You're in that oven the kiln before the pottery comes out. So I just want to hear your, your, whether or not you're consciously aware of what you're doing and if you have a project or if you don't, or however you want to speak of that in relation to this dead figure that still speaks to us, C.S. Lewis. <laughs> he came out of the kiln and uh, there's still there's still smoke coming up from those pages, apparently, for you, and certainly for me as well. And so this idea of what's in the words, right? What's in the words? Because um, you're doing something like a bio. Now that, that was the umbrella. The hand holding up the umbrella is your particular conversation with Job that was released this morning. Oh, yeah. And when I, when I watched it and listened, I thought, I've got to, if he... If he tries to escape me, I'm going to grab his little coat or, or turtleneck, <laughs> whatever you're wearing, and I'm ring him in because now or never, if not now, when? Uh, 
you were talking about following the life of Lewis and then consecrating that in your particular church ensconcement. You're reaching out to the hierarchs within your establishment and offering, I'm not going to say a solution to a problem, but an opportunity to annex some kind of conversation group to the um, regular activities of church. So those two things, and we can make it rain or hail or sunshine, whatever, around those two things. <laughs> well, a little behind the scenes, um, we, you and I had a, a conversation scheduled um, that we had talked about uh, doing, but we talked about it quite some time ago, and I never sent out an invite or put anything on the calendar, and then um, we weren't able to link up yesterday, and that fortuitously led to an impromptu conversation with Joe. So that's what got um, posted today. Uh, to answer part of your, the umbrella part of your question, if, uh, if there is a, a word, and I'm sure there is somewhere in the English language um, that means uh, anything like unintentional is not strong enough. For how I exist, I have a very I have a very unintentional way of being. Um, so none of it seems like none of this has been at least consciously intended. Um, there likely are inten intentions brewing underneath that I've never um, really plumbed the depths of my uh, of myself to to figure out you know what they are, where they come from. Um, if I can even identify them, uh, sometimes, sometimes, a lot of times things just seem to come to be. And if people ask me, well, what made you think of that? Or how is that happening? I, I have a hard time just tracing it back or, or figuring out what it was. Um, so, I mean, being asked to talk about it, I'm sure helps me a little bit, uh, figure out what's going on. Um, and so what I would say is uh, inviting people into conversations or just uh, producing a platform for people who maybe don't have a platform already to submit their own conversations for people who don't want to manage a, a YouTube channel or just don't have any content uh, or consistent content where they would always put something out there, you know, um, that's kind of what this Randos United channel has morphed into, uh, is for people on the Discord who are having conversations and want to get them out there into the world. Um, even if it's just for people who are on the Discord to see, uh, I've just provided this, um, it's just turned into a, a place for everybody to, to share the conversations that they're having if, if they want to. Um, one other piece of this is, you know, as I'm examining it, um, to a certain extent, I'm just copying what I see Paul doing, Paul Vanderclay. Um, and I, I'm not so sure that it doesn't sound like his was all that intentional either. Like there may have been a, a baseline intent to accomplish a very limited uh, task. And then it just continued to morph and grow and turn into different things, right? He, he has said before that he was just looking for more conversation partners because in his local church context as a pastor of a, of a very small and what he calls dying church, um, 
he didn't really have a lot of people that he could have these conversations with and he wanted to have conversations. And so, you know, he transitioned into the YouTube world of just, um, sharing thoughts that he was otherwise sharing in like a blog written format, but just turning them into, you know, free flow, working out his thoughts, um, by speaking them in monologue videos. And, um, we who are familiar with Paul Vanderclay and his channel kind of know the rest of the story. We've, we've sometimes intentionally, sometimes unintentionally, unintentionally become a part of the story. Right. And, um, so it's just, it's just all unfolded from there. Um, the creation of this channel, I've talked about this before. It, it wasn't, it, it didn't really even feel like much more of an intent than I just had a feeling that, the people that I saw on Paul's channel, I felt like I want to have conversations with some of the people who have been on with Paul. And this was months before the Discord server that Joey and company set up existed. And I just felt like, um, well, I'd be interested in having these same kind of conversations with those people. And I'm not really sure where the the motivation to actually share those out on the internet comes from um, some of the very first conversations that we all started having together. We who had met through Paul Vanderclay's channel uh, were not ones that we published and were not ones that we recorded and, and posted. And as I'm talking this through, maybe part of the reason was some of the people who couldn't sync up their schedules to be a part of those conversations that otherwise would have wanted to be involved would then ask us, well, what did you guys talk about? How did the conversation go? I, I'd love to hear it. And so that was a little bit of the rationale for why we started recording them. And then we were, we were just sending the files to one another. And then, you know, I guess it just nat naturally turned into, well, I wonder if there are other people out there who maybe would want to hear these or see these. And I'm sure there was a piece of it that, um, you know, there's probably some streak of, of narcissism as harsh as that word might sound uh to some people so i'll just i'll just focus it on myself there, there's probably some part of me maybe narcissism isn't the right way but whatever it is in us that makes us want to be seen and known and to know um that motivates me a little bit whenever i'm involved in these conversations to put them out there for other people to see because as much as sometimes we feel like we want to avoid criticism. We certainly dislike harsh criticism. Um, we also very much enjoy, you know, the, the, um, is it plaudits or plot? I don't even know if I'm using the right word, but, uh, for people to heap praise on us, um, or to, to tell us that they agree or that they like what we have to say. Um, we certainly do enjoy that. I mean, social media and, and, the feedback loops and the dopamine hits that come from likes and from approving comments, uh, you know, social media testifies to how powerful uh, drivers those things are for us as, as the beings or whatever we are uh, as humans. Um, so I, I'm, I'm, I'm not excluded from that. I'm, I'm sure that I, you know, on different levels, um, enjoy hearing or seeing what people have to say. Um, but I also just love, um, 
when people see these conversations and they say, hey, that made me think of this and, and I'd like to talk about this, whether it's, you know, sending a note or uh, spawning more conversations that we're able to have on the Discord server or people reaching out and saying, you know, I'd like to share some of my ideas or I'd like to talk through my story a little bit because um, making myself known uh, also leads to uh, other people sharing themselves and figuring things out about themselves. Whenever I make myself known to other people uh, and they reflect back what it is that they are seeing or are interpreting, um, it opens up new, uh, I've used this phrase before, it opens up new vistas um, both of ourselves and of the other person. It's like something, something new comes out of conversations in both the the person that's being unveiled to us, but also what in us that person is unveiling that was previously unknown to ourselves. And so I don't know if I answered any of your questions, but those are just some of the thoughts that have uh, bubbled up to um, my consciousness. <laughs> no, it was gorgeous. We no longer need an umbrella. And the, uh, the clouds have certainly parted. That was... That was magnificent. And what, so a number of things came to mind. Um, one, our congruence, because I too see in the work of dialogue, the dia, the through. I'm a sucker for words. I just am. The, the dia, logos. So what cuts through a word? What is a word for it to be cut through? What kind of material substance are we talking about? And so you get a, a John Verveke who doesn't want to talk about a particular piece of pottery that contains a particular set of psychotechnologies that can be practiced and participated with in the great arena of conscious awareness. He wants to talk about the set of all pottery. And kind of like a bull in a china shop, in my particular interpretation, he's all right with breaking these containers, if it's in the service of getting us to a vessel that will take us where we need to go. And um, where that is and what that is is up for debate, but I think that's what he's going after when he says there can be a religion that is not a religion. Now, the propositional assent or disagreement with that aside, the vista he opens in using those words in that order gives people pause and they think, and then they go to their friends or they go to a complete stranger because their friends now become complete strangers when they start opening their mouth and like, wait a minute, a religion that is not a religion, that's heresy. Da -da -da -da. <laughs> right, the wall is built up and the bull is identified as a bull that needs to be brought out of the China shop into a stable. And so things become segregated again. And I, that's where I put the whole tribal language and then in its minutia the identity politic foray, all that stuff that people just pour gasoline on day after day on Twitter. And really, like, like you said, the dopamine kick, little droplets of uh, ecstasy that comes from stating your opinion poetically so that certain groups get charged. That, that is an interesting facet of the internet. But the main broad thing I wanted to bring out after you said what you said, because it 
it went deeper than all of that for me was the unveiling through dialogue the through through logos comes with an unveiling and that is metaphorical in its description so you can unveil by going to a monastery to the louvre in europe looking at paintings or icons by going to the grand canyon by pre-internet because i mean what is the internet going and seeing a mystery play right before shakespeare's time seeing a bunch of actors up there wearing personas pretending to be allegorical figures from the torah <laughs> crazy stuff but yet we saw we recognized before we passed judgment something that unveiled in us and i feel like with the internet we're just doing metaphorically speaking mystery plays for strangers now if someone were to write down what we're doing i mean it could pass for a book or a series now to c.s lewis this is a man who had between his ears a library a compendium of folk tales and myths and fairy tales and he was rational and he had friends that liked to dialogue about reason and you get this marriage of the scientific empiricism the way of talking and these stories that just reveal all and he and he makes things he makes containers or maybe you don't see his books as containers and i don't know if you're comfortable talking about the psychotechnologies or what you're comfortable talking about but i would love to hear you riff and rhapsodize about c.s lewis his relation to you because i've talked I talked in other videos till I'm blue in the face about Kierkegaard and my existential experience with his existentialism, but that's, that's old hat. I consider that my past because I've talked through it and I'm bored, but I want to hear, I've never heard you, but maybe I just haven't found the video yet. Talk through your relation to Lewis or Lewis's relation to Jeff. Maybe that's too meta. Do whatever you want. No, I think it's, I think it's a good, uh, I think it's a good thing to talk about. Uh, again, as I say, I'm I'm very unfamiliar with my own intentions. Um, I I don't talk about this stuff a lot, um, and it's it's quite ironic because I'm looking to start more conversations with more strangers, and you know the stakes go higher and higher as you get as you move into the real life type conversations. So. Um, this is even a good training exercise for me, so <laughs> I appreciate you bringing it up. If if I'm going to focus on uh, leading some type of a, I mean, the church that I'm at, you know, is using the context of, of small group, um, it would be a good thing for me to be able to, to talk this through. Um, you and I have had an interaction before on Discord where we talked briefly about um, Lewis and kind of along these lines. and. So I'm I'm hearkening back to that, back to that for a moment um, to see what I can remember there because uh, I'll articulate my thoughts and then I'll forget about them and as long as they're documented somewhere uh, I'll treat them like well I can always reference back to this you know one of my favorite quotes that I'm going to butcher is uh, Albert Einstein says uh, uh, what does he say a um, a short pencil is better than a long memory. <laughs> <laughs> and so I live by that. 
if, it, if it's written down someplace where I can go back and find it and I felt like I, I articulated it very well, I'll just go reference that whenever anybody asks me. But that's a, that's a difficult task when you're asked to speak uh, extemporaneously. Um, so I'll, I'll try to draw it up in, in my memory banks. But one of the places that I think we connect on uh, about Lewis is um, he does, he opens up those vistas, right? Um, you, you've used iconic vision before um, as a way of, of describing things. And um, Lewis for me is, is someone who takes me places that allows me to see things that I was unable to see before or to see through things and see a much bigger and, and broader way of, of uh, understanding or of just awareness of what was there that was unseen before. So he, he is an unveiler for me. Mm. Um, I, I'm trying to think, I, I have had a conversation on this channel before. It's, it's somewhere in the backlog um, with Michael from the Discord who has spoken with Paul Vanderclay several times or at least twice and uh, certainly been on, um, on Karen Wong's channel. Uh, I met Michael last time. week. Oh, okay, good. Yeah, yeah. Michael is well. Um, and we talked about C.S. Lewis a bit in, in our conversation. Um, the first time that I encountered Lewis, I actually had this, uh, I just had this recollection brought to mind um, this past week. The first time that I encountered Lewis, I was uh, attending a, a, a private Christian school um, in sixth grade. And my sixth grade teacher... Uh, I mentioned this in my conversation to to Michael, um, but it was my sixth grade teacher who had introduced me to uh, C.S. Lewis, and I actually reminded her of that earlier this week in, in a post on Facebook as uh, she was reminiscing about something in, in that time of her life. Um, and it was through the Chronicles of Narnia. Um, I remember in that in that sixth grade class, there was a, there was an animated, um, I think CBS produced it, an animated version of the Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe from the late seventies. And, um, you know, this was, this was several, several years later, we watched it on VHS <laughs> in, uh, in my sixth grade class. And so then I got a box set of the Chronicles of Narnia, um, but I never read through them. I, I think, I can't even recall if I actually read the first book. I was, I remember people telling me some of the things that were going to happen in the series and someone telling me that the last book in the series was um, not necessarily a retelling, but perhaps a, um, they said it was like the book of Revelation from the Bible. Um, and so I was really excited about that because I had been, uh, I had been traumatized from uh, certain uh, interpretations of the book of Revela Revelation in, in prior uh, youth group experience in, some, in uh, one particular church that I went to whenever I was younger, telling me about, you know, what the end times was going to be like and the tribulation and, you know, very, um, very particular um, evangelical uh, tradition and uh, um of the church that I went to. And I just remember being scared to death of, of some of the things that I was being told. Uh, so, but when it came to the Chronicles of Narnia, I wasn't, I wasn't fearful. I was a little bit older and it was more of a, 
you know, any type of a end times prophecy type thing into the world was just very, um, it, it, it stood out in my salience landscape to use some Verbeckian language. Uh, and I have, I have no experience with Verbeckian's work. I have not dug into it. I have not been watching any of the videos. I've only seen what Paul has shared and seen his conversations with John Verbeckian, but, um, the, uh, in, end of the world, end times, uh, not digging into like end times prophecy or anything like that was not all that um, exciting to me. But just anything that had to do with the end of all things has always been uh, very interesting to me or what's going to happen after this. And so I've always been and I'm going all over the place with this, but I, I, no, I love realizing it. I love it. I've always been drawn to um post-apocalyptic type um stories um and then in the in the late 90s when the original matrix movie came out it was like a it was like a combination it was like a convergence of post-apocalyptic and what is reality uh you know because the there's a whole simulation that's going on the matrix is a simulation that you know brains are just in these well not actually jars the whole humans are in jars <laughs> or in vats uh hooked up to this thing and, and they're living in this this illusion um and so you know that that was just very interesting to me and um let's see when did i i so anyway back to the chronicles of narnia for just a second i um I I I was never a reader as a child. I never enjoyed reading. Um I remember there were these um whenever I was young there was like uh, our public library uh had a reading uh competition like over the summer and the kids who read the most books I don't even remember what the reward was. Uh, but you know, my brother and I, my mom would take us to the library, or maybe it was my aunt, I can't remember now, would take us to the library and bring us home with these little forms where we could track which books that we read, and then our parents would sign off that we actually read them. Mm -hmm. And I think I was just trying to, like, I like to, I guess I wanted to mark things off of my list just to show that I had done them. This was long before this Chronicles of Narnia. I, I fly all over the place with my timelines of stories, but... Um, I remember just wanting to uh, mark, you know, just I, I wanted to show that I had accomplished something without doing any work to accomplish it. So I was I had a millennial mindset long before uh, millennials were tarred and feathered with, you know, being uh, given this particular mindset as, as associated with their generation. Um, so I, I didn't want to put in the work. I just wanted to, to get it done. And I remember trying to pass it by my mom one time to get her to sign it. She's like, there's no way you read these books. There's no, you haven't had enough time. I was like, oh man. Um, so that was just to illustrate how, how much of an ass I was, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> Probably still am. Um, but I remember I, I had the box set of the the chronicles of narnia and it was it was uh i call it the classic pictures but they they weren't the original illustrations they were whichever ones came out in the 80s um and i remember seeing the covers of all the books and 
wanting to have access to the stories, but not having to go through the exercise of reading them to get to it. Um, so I never read the Chronicles of Narnia as a child. It wasn't until I was a parent that I actually read through the entirety of the Chronicles of Narnia. And um, I was waiting for the last book, book seven, The Last Battle, because I really was still looking forward to what was going to be in that book. And um, I, I encountered probably the most um, the most significant part of The Last Battle um, while reading another book. And I, I read a blog post that I had written about this years ago in my second one-on-one conversation with Paul Vanderplay. And so I won't go into too much detail there, but um, there was there was a piece uh, that was spoiled for me in the last battle book that just made me want to read it even more. Um, and it's the Hemoth or the Emma story of, you know, the, the quote unquote outsider that nobody would have expected to find in Aslan's new world, his new version of Narnia, which is, you know, representation of heaven or new heaven and new earth after the end of all things. Um, and so I was an adult when I found out uh, that that section was in the book. And I think I was in the midst of reading through the Chronicles of Narnia with my kids then. And I was just so looking forward to getting to the very end of the series so that I could really experience the, that, that section of the book in, it, in its full context. Um, so I, uh, you know, I was kind of all over the place. I think the first Probably the first Lewis book that I read um, with any seriousness, um, like really focusing, was when I was going through um, a, a difficult storm in my life. It was uh, it was um, whenever I was having trouble in my first marriage that eventually led to uh, divorce. Um, I was just I was looking for. I really don't know exactly what I was looking for, but I met with. Um, a guy who used to lead our um, lead a small group that my ex-wife and I uh, attended at the church that we went to at the time. Um, it was uh, it was like a, a newcomers type small group, um, and he had recommended Mere Christianity for anybody who was a new Christian by C.S. Lewis. And um, I'd never really heard of it before. All I knew Lewis for at that time was um, his Chronicles of Narnia stories, so I had no idea that he had written anything um, for, quote, adults, you know, but the Narnia stories are for adults as well. Um, you just, you just uh, have to be of a certain age. You have to have um, not really become a, a full adult, I suppose, or, or maybe so. I can't remember how he, how he, um, he's got this clever way of, of talking about how um, true adults um, still are in touch with their childhood where, you know, people who have lost their childhood have pretty much lost everything as adults. They, they don't want to be seen as um, childlike. They associate childlikeness with childishness. And so they want to put away, you know, those type things. Um, anyway. Uh, so I read Mere Christianity and um, it was really helpful to me. Um, it opened up a lot of ways of looking at things that I'd always seen in one way uh, and thought was boring and and had no life in it. I just thought they were they were really dead concepts. I was um, 
I was in the mode of uh, familiar, you know, the saying familiarity breeds contempt. Um, I wasn't contempt of all the, the biblical stories or of Christian theology or anything like that growing up in church, but it just felt very um, threadbare to steal a, a Paul Vanderclay term. Um, but reading Lewis just revivified everything. Um, it just brought concepts to life um, that I thought I already understood and um, thought had no uh, bearing isn't the right word, but it certainly wasn't interesting or exciting to me. And Lewis helped to open those things up. Um, whenever I was going through the, the difficult part of my marriage, the small group leader who had initially introduced me to mere Christianity, I, I met up with him a couple of years later just to talk through, you know, how things weren't going well with my wife at the time and I. Um, and I really started talking to him about some of the issues that I had with, um, you know, my own faith and how I understood um, certain aspects of Christianity. Um, particularly the doctrine of hell. And um, he recommended that I read the book uh, by Lewis, The Problem of Pain, which I did. And to this day is still my favorite um, nonfiction or non-fantasy um, Lewis book. Uh, and my uh, the guy who used to be my small group leader um, pointed me to a chapter in that book uh, on hell. And he said, well, Lewis talks about this a little bit. You might go read um, this chapter. So I did, and I, and I read it. And it was a little over my head at the time, or I just wasn't understanding what was happening in that, in that chapter. I mean, it was, it, it was good, but it, it just didn't really help me. And so I decided to just read the, the book in its entirety. And that book just helped me so much more with dealing with the storm that I was working through. So that the thing that I was going at with intent was not even what I got out of it was not what I intended. And maybe that's why I'm a little um, oblivious to my own intentions is because I don't feel like they necessarily lead me to what I intended anyway. And so I operate quite a bit in the world without intent and, you know, for good or for ill, that's, that's what happens. Um, as Hamlet yeah. said, as Hamlet said, our actions are our own, or rather he put it through the line of one of his stage characters to trap his uh, uncle. Our actions are our own, their ends, none of ours. Mm. That's right. That's right. You, uh, what's, what's another saying that I've heard? Um, you know, fo focus on doing the job as well as you can do it and let the, let the results speak for them or not speak for themselves, but let the results take care of themselves. Mm. But continue uh -huh. with your story. You're a delightful storyteller. I love the way in which you modulate time because it crisscrosses with juxtapositions of, of uh, image not necessarily boring, linear, 12 inches in a foot, left to right, boring <laughs> pace. You do it so well. Keep, keep going. I, I'm seeing the, the theme building. Well, I, I, I appreciate that. Sometimes my, uh, my line of, of thought and pulling things together can be very annoying to some. So <laughs> I appreciate that. Uh, so... That was my first entrance into recognizing Lewis 
I don't know that he had a, a lot to say and he had a lot of thoughts um, on things that I knew somewhere deep down inside were very important to me, but I just did not know how to access them. So he was, he was giving me access to all of these ideas um, that I never knew were important to me until I started uh, paying attention to what he had to say about them. And so what that did was it just opened the floodgate for me. I, I had to start getting my hands on any Lewis books that I could find in the bookstore. Um, so somewhere along the line, I picked up uh, The Great Divorce, which is my favorite work of uh, fiction or of uh, fantasy that Lewis has written. And it's such a short book, too. Both of those books, The Problem of Pain is so short. Um, but as I've said before, so, so potent, um, and the great divorce as well, a very short book, very quick read. Um, but just so many concepts in there, so many interesting things of, of thinking about reality and, and considering what could be. And that's one of the things that I love about Lewis is, um, he's, he's opened me up to feeling safe to explore ideas of what could be um, without uh, feeling like I'm doing something wrong or feeling like I'm going to uh, cause harm to myself, my, um, my standing with um, the foundation of all being. Because <laughs> uh, well I, uh, I grew up in a, a church environment that uh, as my, my wife, has so so uh well pointed out and reminds me of many times of it, it was a it's not even a denomination it was more of a sect um i would say it's a hair shy of of a cult uh but certainly a sect of christianity that saw the southern baptist denomination as liberal <laughs> now what <laughs> yes so i think uh from what i understand about john verveke um he he may have grown up in in somewhat of a of a similar environment but it's very interesting i never i never felt uh harm or harm is not the right word but i never i never felt like overt um i don't know if judgment is the right word but certainly not overt uh, fear uh, from the people there. Um, there was certainly implicit fear of, you know, the the danger, the fear of falling into the hands of a living God. And I don't, um, I don't, I don't take those passages of Scripture lightly at all. Um, but it also made me feel, Lewis made me feel um, safe maybe because I saw someone like him who seemed to be very respected, as I mentioned in my last conversation with Joe, respected uh, by um, seemingly, you know, the, the major um, lanes, I think is the word I used, of Christendom, the Eastern Orthodox, the Roman Catholics, and the, the Protestants. Now, I know that you can find segments probably in all three of those who have a lot of problems with Lewis, but it just seems like in the main, um, 
a lot of people seem to uh, respect him and his thought on Christianity. And um, so just seeing that and knowing that in the particular church context that I was in or familiar with, um, more of a traditional, uh, non-denominational Christian evangelical, more of the, the right side of the theological spectrum, right is in directionally, not as in correct. I want to clarify that for anybody that that may have triggered. <laughs> and some others listening might say, well, no, uh, the, the right side of that aisle is correct. I'm like, okay, everybody to each their own, do, do what you need to do with that. But um, being there, you know, a lot of the people in the tribe that I felt like I was in at the time seemed to think that Lewis was safe and was okay. And so that made me feel safe and okay for being able to really dig down and read some of the things that he was putting forward. Um, and so um, in The Great Divorce in particular, uh, well, I, I think in the intro, in one of the intros to one of Lewis's books, um, he talks about George MacDonald and how George MacDonald had such an impact on him and how he was so much of, a, of an inspiration uh, in his theological thought and in his development. Um, made me read a bit of George MacDonald and made me appreciate um, the reverence that Lewis had for MacDonald. And then to read The Great Divorce and read Lewis write MacDonald into that story. Um, and I've got, I've got a few blog posts that I've written about this um, that I'll, I'll probably share at some point, either in a conversation with somebody, or I might just post a video where I, you know, read it and then maybe comment on it a little bit, um, for the, or link one to person. this video or a link to this video. Who knows? It's up to you. Um, for anybody who might be interested, uh, we'll see. Um, but it just, so McDonald is to Lewis, uh, as Lewis is to Jeff. <laughs> so Lewis never got to meet McDonald. Um McDonald died before Lewis was born. Uh Lewis got to meet McDonald's son. Did McDonald have a son? Yeah. McDonald had a son, but McDonald's sons had no children. So the family tree at least through George McDonald ended with his son. Um, but he got to meet, did he get to, I'm probably getting this all mixed up. I know he got to read, um, George McDonald's son. I think his name is Greville McDonald, um, which that's an interesting name, but that's an aside. Uh, <laughs> uh, Greville McDonald, I think wrote a biography on his father. And so, oh, that's right. Lewis didn't get to meet. McDonald's son. He got to meet someone who who had met McDonald's son or knew McDonald's son, and that's the closest that he got. And so I'm going a long way to get to the point that I'm trying to make, which is my way. Um, but then we'll know it as if for the first time. Yes. Now I am unveiling. I'm getting to the point. The big reveal. Um, in in the Great Divorce. I just think of how wonderful it is uh, that Lewis, you, you get to see Lewis's imagination on display and I can, I can only imagine how uh, wonderful 
and how much love was in Lewis's exercise of being able to write what a conversation between he and one of his heroes would actually be like. And that's what you get to see on full display in The Great Divorce. Um, it's probably close to, I don't know, maybe a third, maybe a, a quarter of the book is spent with Lewis learning from McDonald in fictional conversation. And this is a, this is a really fascinating way of, it, it links to me, it links to uh, what Jordan Peterson has said about prayer. And, and Peterson essentially is, is alluding to having a conversation with God, with the place where we don't know where ideas come from, where you sit on the edge of your bed and you honestly and earnestly ask questions and you're willing to listen to the answers. And, and at that moment, at that moment, at that moment, I want to bring in even more suspense for your listeners. Keep that, Jeff. Keep it for one second. Keep <laughs> it. Keep it. Okay. Karen from the Meaning Code can rush in at this moment because Karen is exploring with Michael. She read Maps of Meaning very closely. She read it, I believe, three times and has written a, mm -hmm. uh, a treatment on it where she reveals her hermeneutical key as it's coming into being for unlocking his aesthetic regard for all the levels of being, right? We like to think of the zoological, but what about the phenomenological starry heavens above the moral law within to quote Immanuel Kant? Jordan B. Peterson is a modern 21st century Immanuel Kant who happens to be a clinical psychologist at the same time. But she's been reading this book, Maps of Meaning, and asking herself, all right, Aristotle's aim, my iconic eyes, those are my words, things come into view and receive hewn edges, and they find their fractal place to hide as being passes. But what permits the items of knowledge to enter conscious awareness? And what is it that excludes, that debars all the rest. The combinatory explosion outside mm. our conscious windowsill so that we have this fly buzzing in our room. And then Emily Dickinson-like that we fixate on and try to participate in a kind of relationship with throughout our lives. What permits and what excludes? How? And why? This is Karen's project and her ambition, and I'm I'm falling in love with the with the with the adventure of it. And it's it is this thing that Plato was talking about way way back in his book, where he thought the original impetus to philosophizing is wonder, the feeling of wonder. Period. Aside. Aside, let's go back, Jeff. Taking the red bookmark out, continue telling your story. <laughs> wow. Yeah, well, it's hard for me to, to come back to where I was going because you made me think of so many things there now. But I'll, I'll, I'll pause. I'll hush those thoughts for a second. The, uh, the Paul Vanderclay Consciousness Congress, I'll, I'll tell one side of the Congress, all right, settle down. 
and uh, we'll we'll go back. Um, I really think the only point that I was getting to there is um, I just I just think it's a beautiful thing. It's a it's a one it was a wonderful exercise. I think uh, well to imagine what it was like for him to be able to write that, but then to see it play out on the pages and to see the conversation between the two, and it just has. Um, it just has some wonderful moments um, that I won't get into here, but it's, it's a treasure to me just to be able to see it. And, um, you know, I, I have thought about this a little bit um, where, you know, I, I would, I would like to be able to, to dialogue with, with Lewis. Um, and one of, the, one of the joys of just considering the, the idea of what that, what that might be like was uh, revealed to me, when Mary Cohan uh, suggested a series of, of videos um, where Eric Metaxas sits down with Walter Hooper, the biographer, biographer the, uh, the editor of so many different um, C.S. Lewis works. Um, and he tells a story in this three-part video series that he, where he's being interviewed about how he first met Lewis. Lewis invited him to come visit in um, to visit Lewis in Lewis's uh, later years, um, shortly before Lewis passed away. Come visit him in um, I, I can't remember which part of the the UK it's in, it's in, um, but to visit him as a, at his home in in England. And Hooper talks about how he had been corresponding with Lewis uh, and Lewis, you know, would correspond a great deal with anybody who would write to him. He would try to write them back and write them back with substance and, and address, you know, what their questions were. And he took that as, as a part of his duty um, of being someone who was in the, in the public eye and to all of his readers, you know, he felt like that was a part of his calling. And so he invited, he actually invited Walter Hooper to come visit him. And Walter Hooper just tells the story of how Lewis just um, made him feel like he was the most important person uh, that was in the room, right? If, if I were sitting with Lewis, I would not feel like I was the most important, important person in the room just thinking about it, right? Um, but he says, no, Lewis, Lewis would make you feel like you were the most important. Um, and he, he even took him to... Uh, an inklings meeting. He said, well, you're not going home yet. You're going to come with me tonight. We're going to go uh, and we're going to sit with the inklings. Um, and he said he would continue to draw Hooper into these conversations to say, well, what do you think about this, Walter? You know, uh, isn't uh, this, is, this is something that I think that, that you would have particular importance to, to bring into this conversation. You know, tell us, tell us what you think. And, and he would he would put the spotlight, he would talk about how Lewis would put the spotlight on him. Um, and that, that just seems to me like that, that was just a joy to be able to hear that that's what it would, it would be like to spend time um, talking to Lewis. Again, not for the narcissistic part, but just for him to have that ability to, to draw that out of people and to help people to unveil, right? To see things about yourself that maybe you didn't even realize or to make you, make you feel better about yourself than you did. It's a, it's a quality that um, it sounds like is common uh, with Fred Rogers as well for people, Mr. Rogers, who 
spent time with Mr. Rogers and sat down and talked to him, they would say, you know, he made me feel like I was the only person on earth. He was just able to focus his attention on me and treat me like there was nothing else in the world that was important besides this person that he was talking to. Um, and that seems to be a, a common quality as I understood it um, between him and Lewis. And, you know, I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to deify the person. I, I certainly understand that everybody has their, their faults. Um, but that quality in and of itself seems to be a quality that transcends these individuals. And it's a quality that I think if we could all reach um, to, to try to reach toward and strive toward and grab, um, I think we would all start to embody the logos. And if I could use some church language for a moment, all start to look more Christ-like and act more Christ-like. Um, that a lot of the, the problems that we see in the world that are of our own making would start to evaporate um, uh, in, in fast fashion. Uh, and so, you know, I would like to be able to try to, to try to cultivate that um, in myself and be able to draw the light forth um, from and through other people, both to, to shine uh, on me selfishly, but also reflect that light back to others. Um, and so that's, that's a little bit of um, what Lewis means to me. Lewis is a window to something bigger and brighter and um, transformative and transcendent. Um, not Lewis himself, but the windows that he's able to open, the the things that he's able to help me see are um, are things that I think would um, make the world better, but to bring it down to a to a localized level um, to help make my relationship with my wife better, um, with my kids better, with my family better, my brother, my sister, my uh, aunts and uncles my friends, my neighbors, my uh, community. Um, this is for me the, the key to the equilibrated state that Peterson points to in um, Piaget. Um, if, it's, if it's right at the localized level, it will start to reverberate out and make things right at the global and the universal level. Amen. I'm done. I Jeff, you took my breath away. <laughs> I mean it. That was, I mean, what can one say after, after that conclusion? I, I have to go. Um, I have to go. Thanks for, I, I got uh, some errands to run and uh, a whole day's worth of words to meditate on. Thank you, Jeff. Well, thank you, for, thank you for taking the time you know, especially on your, your Sabbath, they're very important to me. We, uh, we overlook our, our Sabbaths at our peril. And so we need to take it, take advantage of, um, take advantage of the, the commandment that comes out of the, you know, the old Testament, um, is to, to take our Sabbaths and, and use them because they, they were, the Sabbath was created for us to quote, uh, an old mystic, uh, named Jesus. 
the Sabbath was made for for us, not us for the Sabbath. So we should we should uh, take advantage of it. <laughs> so I'll let you take advantage of it. I need to go as well. But I really appreciate the time, Matt. You are a very um, you're a very unique um, person. You you have a unique way of seeing and talking about things, and it it makes me take note. Uh, and I. I reflect a lot. Uh, I just, I'll just, just a quick aside. I know you've got to go, but there was a conversation. I think it was the first conversation that you had with Cassidy, where you were talking about walking down the street and just observing the trees. And it was just, it was a different way of seeing um, that I don't think is common for a lot of people. And I want to, I, I envy um, being able to see that way too. So I look forward to just learning a lot more from you and just seeing your interactions on the discord or in other future conversations with people um out there and, and conversations with me i've i've done a lot of talking on this one um so i look forward to hearing and and learning more from you thank you jeff bye bye take care take care next time <laughs>